Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Tanya Mork. Tanya is a tech leader, software and electrical engineer, and educator who has been involved in high-tech engineering since the mid-1980s. She has worked on multi-million dollar systems for the world's big manufacturers and started her own engineering company in 2002. Through knowthecode.io, Tanya focuses currently on helping WordPress developers become awesomer by writing and teaching about code, construction, programming, and how to think about code. Tanya is the author of the LeanPub book, Refactoring Tweaks, 7 Plus Easy Wins to Make Your Code Better and Increase Your Profits. It is being sold as part of a bundle on LeanPub along with the Refactoring Tweaks workbook. In this interview, we're going to talk about Tanya's career and professional interests, her book and her experience self-publishing on LeanPub at the very end. Um, Please note you can follow Tanya at HelloFromTanya on Twitter, and she's got a great blog at HelloFromTanya.com slash blog. So thank you, Tanya, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Well, thank you, Len. I appreciate being here. Um, I, as, as you know, I usually like to start these interviews um, by asking people for their origin story. Um, you've got a particularly interesting story um, with a history of work in lots of different areas and, and a lot of personal adventure. Um, and I think people would really like to hear uh, you tell your story in your own words. Sure. Uh, I do have an interesting story. I think those who tell stories need also have an interesting story. And mine's unique. Uh, I've been in engineering since the mid-1980s. I used to work, and I'm going to say used to, and we'll talk about why here in a moment. I used to work in the high-tech manufacturing sector. So if you think about anything that you use, your computer, your car, your refrigerator, all those Uh, Things that you purchase and use, those are manufactured. They're mass manufacturers. They're put together with very sophisticated high-tech automation equipment, such as robotics, instrumentation, quality control, those types of things. And that's the world I used to belong to. Okay, so in that, I was a tech, and then I worked my way up into project management, engineering. I became a manager and then an executive and had my own engineering company. Those are things that I used to do. And then something happened. So I got sick. I had an engineering company. We were doing very well, very profitable. And this illness that I had was so rare that basically the doctors told me, there's nothing we can do for you. You're just going to have to protect yourself because when I would get ill, it was life-threatening and the environment around me affected me. Imagine being in a car watching a bird fly, being with family, too many people talking at once, the noise, the chaos, those types of things would send me into a seizure and make me so ill that it was life-threatening. And so what we had to do was lock myself away and be able to protect myself, control the environment. That went on for quite a few years, quite a few years. I was in a dark, deep hole of depression, obviously. My whole company was ripped away from me. You watch uh, people come and take away all the stuff that you built, your whole career, all of it, your home, your savings, everything, my company. The families that were counting on me lost their jobs and had to start over again, my clients. So it was very devastating. Somewhere along the way, though, I said, "Ah, that's enough. I've got to get back to me, and I'm a happy person. So I found a way to be able to say, okay, I can't go out into a manufacturing space and help people to be more profitable and and do better with their automation. I can do something virtually to contribute in this world. And I started teaching. 
and helping. I have all this experience in engineering. How can I help people? And I ended up, first I started a nonprofit to help people like me. And then I ended up in this space, this WordPress space, this large community of people that stepped into the world of programming without a programming background. And they were asking very elementary questions, things that I could help them with. And they accepted me into their community. Uh, And what I do now is I'm in the third chapter and I focus on teaching programmatic thought, troubleshooting, um, all of those things that developers and seasoned software professionals take for granted. Well, those are the things that I'm teaching and helping people in the WordPress space become, as I say, be more awesome. And you've got a particularly uh, interesting moment of recovery as well um, in your story. Yeah. yeah, I do. So towards the end of this saga, uh, my body failed. You know, the doctors were throwing different medicines at me, trying different techniques to help control me, and my body just gave up. And I passed away. I got a miracle. And when that miracle came, I decided I need to change the trajectory of my life and move into helping people and being in a service mode. And that's what I do is I'm on this mission and it's a real mission. It's a mission that was given to me because I got another chance in life and I'm here to help other people. And that's what I'm going to dedicate this part of my life to. Um, in your wonderful essay, finding your purpose in life, where you, you, you talk about um, uh, your journey, um, you write about the way that in the engineering world, um, in the previous, your, your, your first career, um, everything was proprietary and closed off. Um, but you found something very different when you joined the developer community that has grown around WordPress. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience. Sure. Uh, so the world that I came from previously, so when you're going to go into things like robotics and you're going to build machine learning systems and those types of systems, Um, that information is going to be proprietary. It's going to have to be owned so that companies can protect their interest, their knowledge, their profitability. Okay. Well, when you're doing those things, that means people are protecting their little silos of information. You can't just go out into a community and say, hey, I'm building this cool little reasoning engine. I need X, Y, and Z. And it's got to be able to to work and do these types of things. Well, that just doesn't exist. That doesn't happen. Then I found this community. This community is completely different. Everybody will give of themselves to help each other. It's open source. And you'll find that when you get into open source communities, that the communities themselves will reach out and help lift up somebody else. If you're having an issue, it's not, well, that was a stupid question. No, you, yeah, you can get that. But for the most part, it's let me see what I can do to help you and give of my knowledge to make you better and help solve your problem. Yeah, that's really, that's really great. I really enjoyed reading how you described that experience. I mean, there's, it's such a contrast. Um, uh, it reminded me uh, of um, uh, Elon Musk releasing all kinds of information about the stuff that he'd done recently, which is for all kinds of crazy kind of, well, well, not crazy, but like all kinds of complex reasons. And I was wondering, do you think, do you think that world, the, the world of patents and protection has changed or is really there just, you know, one or two sort of well-known 
outlier situations, but really it's all the same as it used to be. Um, you know, from my experience now, obviously I was out of the market for a while being ill, but from my experience, from what I see right now sitting, I don't see that much of a change. Um, I still see companies and with good reason being able to say, I need to protect this knowledge. My team developed it. It gives me a competitive advantage. I need to protect that. So there are times when you can say, I can give away this knowledge for free. It's for the betterment of the community. I can see that. I can also see instances where you can't give that away. You're going to give away your trade secrets. So yeah, I can see the differences that from uh, a leadership point of view and a business point of view to where you need to have those two separate approaches and strategies. Um, I recently um, interviewed another person who, who started out um, in the very uh, high stakes world of, um, uh, you know, programming and engineering around manufacturing. Um, and I really enjoyed reading your post, your recent blog post, in which you talk about firefighting and being reactive and how much you dislike those approaches. I do. Um, and, I, and I was wondering um, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that experience that you had and what it is, what, what, what firefighting is and sure. why it's so bad. Yeah. So I just, right at the very beginning of that particular article, I tell you, I despise a reactive strategy. I do. It's too costly. And then I go through and I tell you a story of my, one of my favorite projects that I did that was to transform a company from this reactive strategy of firefighting, we'll talk about that, to a proactive approach and how they went from nearly having chains on their door and everyone losing their jobs to they were flourishing. Okay, so how do we do that? Well, first of all, what is reactive? Reactive is something's already happened. And now everybody drops everything and comes running to fix the problem, right? So that's what firefighting is. Oh my gosh, we're in crisis mode. Something has happened, some event. A site's gone down, a line's gone down, a customer's complaining. And people can relate to this, right? Because that's how we do a lot of our customer service. We think about, oh, okay, I have a help desk. But I have clients call in. Well, they're calling in now because they have a problem, right? That's reactive. It's already happened. The proactive approach then is to change that strategy. It's to think about how to ask the question to prevent that from occurring. Putting systems in place to prevent it from occurring. Changing the dynamics of your team to be able to say, okay, Yes, stuff's going to happen. And yes, there's going to be a reactive model to certain things. But our business structure and our strategy should be, we need to anticipate what those things are and put systems in place and have leadership from the top down be able to drive that, hey, we're proactive. We solve problems before they happen. And one of the things that I talked about was in this particular company was they had the engineering department set up where the systems were so complex that the engineers had to drop everything and run out to get the lines back up and running again. That's wrong. Engineers are too expensive and too valuable. They have a role. Their role is creating new products and coming up with more efficient ways of being able to do things, right? So we need to have them not be our firefighters, 
and enable our maintenance department, our technicians, those folks that handle service and support, enable them to do their jobs better. And so that was some of the, the things that I talked about in that article, all the way to the point of just the culture. How can we shift the culture to think more in a proactive mode versus a reactive? I really, um, I was very interested in your description of the culture. Um, and there were two sort of, I guess, sort of twin aspects of it. One of, one of which was the, as I, as I gathered, the um, managers around the facility thought that their presence during moments of crisis would kind of increase responsiveness. Yes. Um, that just their personal being around would um, uh, help make things, w- would increase the pressure on people to perform. And you also mentioned that um, you had a really funny moment where you talk about how, like, if you show up to a boardroom and tell the board they're making mistakes, that's the that won't work. Um, yeah, you'll get kicked right out of there. <laughs> and so you need to show up with um, uh, proof. Um, and that latter point is is really good. Um, but I thought I just wanted to ask you a little bit about. I mean, is that is that was that true generally in your experience that personality was so important that you know on the one hand, you know, even if you were right and you went in with true statements, the interpersonal nature of a board meeting makes it impossible to just be direct and at the same time you know you have managers in a facility in a you know expensive valuable facility who kind of have an ego problem i mean is that just part of the industry absolutely it's okay. not just the industry i think that's just human nature okay so higher up the echelon that we go and even in engineering engineers have egos right people have egos now, when I step into a boardroom, uh, there are some big personalities in there. I'm a big personality. Well, there's a lot of big personalities sitting in that room. They got to that level because they're visionary. They have, uh, they have some sort of path behind them that says, hey, I have the experience, the ability, the vision, the leadership to be able to be a, sit in this room. Okay, So you've got to then walk in and say, all right. There's a problem. You've hired me to come in and solve a problem. There's a problem. Well, you know there is. Okay, I can't just walk in here and say, um, you guys are part of the problem. Because <laughs> if I do that, yeah, there those big egos are going to march me right out the door. And it's true if it's a boardroom, if it's an engineering room, if it's a meeting, any meeting whatsoever. I find it's much more productive if we walk in and say, okay, here's the truth. There's a problem. Oh, here's a solution. And here's the proof to back it up. Here's the data. Now, there are things that we can't just yet prove in our plan, but we can put metrics in place to be able to say, all right, you can put a short leash on me now and measure me and say, okay, this plan is going to reach this pinnacle. Here is some sort of metric to be able to measure that. So what I talk about in the article, too, is, okay, one of the problems was leadership did feel – and. This is true in a lot of companies that I've been in. Okay? It doesn't just have to be the top you know, leaders themselves. It can be a manager who feels like, okay, I put more pressure on people if I stand there over your shoulder. My presence being here lets you know this is important. Okay? That's wrong. To me, you're either a spectator or you're part of the solution. And part of the solution is not putting more pressure on people. People don't perform well under pressure. 
right? It's sending the wrong message. So the message that the leadership was sending was, this is a crisis. Everybody drop everything and come running. And literally, I would see the IT manager out there on the floor. Sometimes there were secretaries out on the floor because it came from the top echelon to say, everybody drop everything. There's a crisis. It was so reactive that everything stopped. Okay. Well, there's lots of tasks in a company that need to get done at the same time, asynchronously. And if everything's going to come to a grinding halt, well, that's a problem. And the solution, as I recall, in this case that you came up with was to, I mean, the the long-term solution um, that brought this facility into a much better position within its company was to refocus the engineers away from that firefighting and reactive role and onto sort of uh, proactive situations where the, A, they were doing the innovating that engineers should be doing, and B, they were doing the kind of, you know, predictive kind of work that they should be doing to prevent problems from happening again, rather than fighting them. Right. It was a culture shift. Okay. So what we said was, what's everybody's role in a company? All right, go do that role. So then the question had to be asked, why do the engineers need to be on the floor? So part of the total transformation was management, get off the floor, stop coming out. Okay. Let's enable our people and trust our people to get their jobs done. And if they're not getting it done, then ask the question, why aren't they capable? What systems aren't in place to make them capable of doing that? And from the, what we saw was things were too complex. The equipment was too complex, so we started simplifying things. Okay, we needed more training. Well, let's put some more training in place. We needed a system that would help people that, okay, when something goes wrong, how can we have the system tell us, um, hello, I might be going out of my threshold. Something might be coming. And so part of the transformation was to build a system It was a machine learning system that then did predictive modeling to be able to say, um, all right, this area is starting to go outside of its parameters that you've defined. I'm going to alert you that something might happen. And then we put a system in place that walked you through the steps of how to resolve those issues. Maintenance departments have those anyway. They're usually some sort of document that says, okay, do this, then do that, then do this. Well, we just automated it. We put it into a software package, developed that. We even looked and said, okay, do we have the parts and system? No, well, then send a message off to purchasing. We need to order this. This is where the parts are at. Here's how the shop order is to build things. So it was a total transformation of shifting the culture, the equipment, and the processes to be proactive. Um, it's interesting. I think I might have noticed a um, a bit of a thread in your in your work about getting to sort of the fundamentals of what's going on and understanding them. And you talk in a video at um, knowthecode.io, your website, about teaching people the building blocks of computation and knowing the essence of code. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what those important building blocks are um, when people are doing their own uh, development and... um, Maybe, maybe in particular, what people should learn when they get into WordPress development, which is part of the subject of your, your book. Sure. And actually, you know, the thing, yeah, I'm working in the WordPress world, but here's what I'm, I try to tell people. And I'm actually putting together a presentation for a WordCamp that I'm going to be going to on this subject. 
which is that programming is not hard. It's not. If you understand programmatic thought and troubleshooting, problem solving. Okay. If you understand those things, here's what people don't understand is I don't care if I'm building a robotic system, a machine learning system, or a simple website. They're built with the same building blocks. Okay. We just put them together in different ways. And we incrementally put these little building blocks together that come together to form incredible different systems that we can do from banking systems to security systems to sending something up to the moon, right? So an if is an if is an if. A while is a while is a while. All of these different types of instructions and code are the same, okay? I can go from Python. I can go from C++. I can go from C. I can go to PHP. All of these things have the same different small building blocks. And once you understand those, all of a sudden you'll be able to build anything in code because now it's just, okay, I understand all the different little building blocks of code. Okay. I can read it in different syntax because it makes sense. I understand that there are looping instructions. I understand that there's decision type instructions, right? I understand that I need to break up my code into subroutines. And now we start to learn about different design patterns and uh, quality coding. How do you make things to be more reusable, more modular, more configurable, more readable? I try to focus folks on readability. If I can read the code, because code should be human readable without inline comments, I should just be able to read it and it tells me a story. If I can do that, right there, I've made code to be more maintainable. I've reduced the cost over its life cycle. And those are the types of things that I talk about when we get down to the basic building blocks. Yeah, that's the bigger picture, right? Mm -hmm. But it all starts, if I'm a new person coming into programming, it all starts with the fundamentals. First of all, what is programmatic thought? What is problem solving? Okay. What are some of the big blocks that you'll see in every single language? What are those? What's, how's data move around? Uh, What's it mean to be able to move by reference or by value? What do those things mean? And those are the things that I teach is I break it all the way down so it's very tiny and small. And then we start to put together more complex things. And do you think um, things are easier nowadays to get started than, say, 10 years ago, um, if one wants to get started as a sort of self, self-taught programmer? Yes. Okay. I guess it was a loaded question. But. How was that for a big question? Yeah. yeah. So when I started, you know, back in the mid-1980s, there wasn't the internet, okay? We didn't have email. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have the internet. So it basically was you put yourself with a person who is better than you and you scarf all the information you can get off of, right? And they help teach you about this profession, Okay. You know, you can go to college, you can go and get your computer science degree, but now step out into the real world and add value on day one in programming. That, there's a gap there, right? That doesn't happen. Okay, so what we have now, though, is the ability to go to all these tremendous sites to be able to share information about how you put systems together. Not only that, but we can share different frameworks, we can share different starting blocks, and we can take all this great code and we can pull that in to save ourselves time 
So we've got resources for training. We've got resources for building blocks to start with projects to reduce our time. And then we've got different experts around the way that are sharing their knowledge, either through books or blogs or presentations or all of it. So there's lots of information. Now, there's also a lot of bad information out there. And learning how to disseminate what's good and bad, well, that's a different skill set of being able to learn the basics from a, you know, someone who really knows their stuff and knows how to transfer that knowledge out of their brain to yours, right? So it becomes adaptable for you. So I talk about adaptability a lot. I can teach you how to build one website. Well, yeah, whoopee. I know how to build this one thing, but I want you to make it your own so you can go build something else. Yeah, that's really that's a really interesting issue. Um, it's one um, I encountered um, indirectly in an interview a couple of months ago with a couple of network engineers. But they were talking about how, you know, what you really need to do if you want to succeed in this world is to first think and learn and truly understand what you're doing, rather than fall for the um, uh, very seductive um, uh, trap of just Googling for little solutions every time you run into a problem. Absolutely. Uh, because it, one, of the, one of the consequences of having such powerful and, and, and so much information available for programmers nowadays is that you know, every time you hit a roadblock, you can just kind of Google and then copy-paste um, a solution. I mean, that's putting it sort of crudely, but... Um, it's uh, very true, though. Yeah. Mm, mm. And is that, it, is that something when you're teaching people that you... Is that another thing that you have to teach them? That Absolutely. Okay. If I, okay. So part of what I teach too is to think about the cost of what you're, what you're doing. So every single hour you put into a project is impacting the cost of that. So code has a life cycle to it. It has a cost to it. So I try to come up with ways to teach people to think not only about the profession of building, the actual building of code, but how can you build it? more efficiently, more effectively, right? So there's a cost to that. Now, if, I, if I'm spending my time out searching for snippets of code, how productive am I being, right? I'm, I'm looking and I'm trying to ascertain, um, does this work for me? Does that work for me? And then you go and you pull it into your code and it has a side effect. It wasn't built for your solution, your use case, right? So you put it in and if you don't understand the why of it, all of a sudden you may get the side effect that pops up and maybe it's popping up somewhere else and you're not understanding why. So then we end up with little band-aids all over the place. So, okay, I, I squashed this bug and oh, it's going to pop up its ugly head over here. So I'm a big proponent of not spending your day out there Googling for solutions. I'm more into understand the why of it, understand the intent of it, understand the fundamentals of it, and then get down, put your head together, find a team Work within a team so that someone, you have ideas to be able to share with other people and bounce ideas off and start writing that code. Um, uh, moving on to the subject of your book, which I think is related to what we've been talking about. Um, it's called Refactoring Tweaks. Um, and uh, I was wondering if you wouldn't uh, mind talking a little bit about who that, who that book is for um, and what it is that you go about explaining in there. Sure. I really like the, the sort of in-depth argument about refactoring. <laughs> so refactoring is the process of taking code that's working and making it better. You're improving it. You're cleaning it up, right? You're going to put in the steps that do this. It makes it more readable. It makes it more reusable. 
and it makes it more maintainable. Okay. Those are the, the key factors of what you're trying to do when you refactor something. You're just improving your code. Improving code is going to lower the cost of that code over its life cycle, okay? So that we can then turn around and reuse it again. So if you can picture that, okay, if I've got this code and let's say I have a function that's 200 lines long. Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you it's probably doing too many things. But uh, if I'm looking at that and a bug happens, I wrote it, but I'm typically not going to be the person that maintains it. So it gets passed along the way, a bug pops up, and it's taking too long for people to be able to go in and fix these problems. And maybe it's impacting something else. Okay. We all know these horrors if we've been in software long enough. What the book is about is this. All right. You can go and read a technical book, and I've got some great ones right here in my library, on refactoring. They're very, very technical. They go into big words and big descriptions and code that maybe you'll use and maybe you won't. Well, what I did instead was is I try to make things more relatable. I start where you're at. And I say, I don't care about big words. I want to get down to the nuts and bolts. Here's a problem. Why is it a problem? Let's talk about why. Why why is this the way it is? What's the intent of it? And walk through a thought process. So what refactoring tweaks does is it gives you these simple solutions that you can say, okay, here's some clues that tell you you might have a problem. And now here are seven different, and I actually threw a couple of extras in there, seven different things that you can go do right now in your code. These are simple, easy, that's going to make it better. And then the workbook then takes that. And I say, okay, here's a code challenge. There's going to be seven of them. And then there's a total solution where I walk you through the thought process. So I want you to hear from the way I think about code to be able to say, okay, step one, do you see this? Well, why? Why is it like that? What can we do to make this better? And then we step by step by step walk through the process of the why, the how, the when, and the what. With respect to process, I'm really interested in asking you about the process of making the book itself. Um, uh, It's a beautifully formatted book. Um, and uh, you you um, used our Bring Your Own Book feature to, to upload it to Lean Pub's bookstore. And I, I saw in your book that you um, uh, mentioned you had five collaborators on it, I believe, including a cover designer, editors, and proofreaders. And I was wondering um, uh, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that process of making the book with a team of people and how, you, how did you assemble your crew? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, my crew has been with me since I started uh, – really out there teaching in the WordPress space. These are volunteers. Yeah, if you can believe it, WordPress people give of their time to help other people. These people have been here with me. They give of their time, and then I give back to them. I help them with their projects. I teach them. I help them to be able to be better. So it's a give and take, right? Um, I came to LeanPub because I buy books from LeanPub. I like the idea of ship early, ship off it. It fits within that, okay? Well, there's also with LeanPub, you can use the tools that are built in to then do a minimum type of publishing, right? It's a very lean process. Well, I shifted that model for myself and I said, okay, how can I use the platform then for me, for my purposes? I like things to be visually pretty, something that you want to pick up and read. It's not just white page of words, right? Instead, it has color. It has, I can then call out 
sections and be able to emphasize those to say, hey, here's a master tip. Here's a what if. And I can pull those out and add some color to them to make them pop as a sidebar. Um, So that visual sense in my mind, that user experience said, okay, the the total platform's not going to work for me. But you guys built in a way that I can still ship early, ship off, and get the content out as I write it, get feedback, but then I can produce it the way I want to produce it, which is well-edited, beautifully designed, and bring my own book to the platform. So I'm still within what the intent of the platform is so I can get the information and the ideas out. I just twisted it to fit my needs and the way I like to work. Yeah, as I said, it's a it's a really beautiful book. There's one there's one um, page in particular that I really love, um, which is as on the top half, an image of a a kind of um, really dilapidated and risky looking um, suspension type bridge. Yeah. Um, over a, like you know Indiana Jones style kind of you know bridge across a chasm uh, or a river, I guess in this case, and then a good one, and you say you know you know. It looks like it works, something along the lines of it looks yep. like it works, but do you trust it? Right. Um, and I thought that that was a great um, uh, metaphor for, you know, looking at code. I mean, you, I imagine, I mean, I'm not a developer myself, but I can imagine you look at some code and you're like, okay, I know this product works, but my God, um, you know, venturing out onto this thing is going to be much more um, challenging than another one. And you can just look at it and see. Um, uh, you know, the difference. Um, yeah, and that was the whole point behind that page. Uh, and I use that in talks that I do too, is there's code that just works. That doesn't mean it's quality code. And that picture right there brings that point to mind. It's a bridge. <laughs> mm-hmm. There are boards. But do you, when a problem happens, do you want to be the one to step out in the middle of it and fix that board? Well, I know I wouldn't want to. Um, And then it shows you a picture of a beautifully engineered bridge that's safe, secure, Mm -hmm. and does the same thing. They both do the exact same thing. They're both working bridges, and that's the point of refactoring. Um, The workbook that you've published, um, along with refactoring tweaks, I believe is about 70% finished. Yes. Um, Did you... you publish I'm, I'm sorry i don't know the answer to this but did you publish refactoring tweaks before it was finished also yes you did okay yes yeah so i actually went through the process of okay i think it at first was maybe 20 percent that uh, that i put that out there um and then as i went along i think there were maybe four different releases to that one if i remember right um and then the workbook itself will have a couple of different releases to it uh, it's actually the biggest chunk of it's off in editing right now and then we'll be releasing that later this week and have you been um incorporating feedback from people are you inviting feedback from readers absolutely so each person that uh, has signed up for it they're they've been very kind with their time to come back and tell me what they think um, and I always tell people that, you know, you don't need to blow wind up my skirt. Just tell me like it is. If there's something you like, great. If, but I'm more interested in those concepts that didn't quite resonate with you. Uh, maybe you didn't quite understand it because that means I need to go back into that and do something a little bit different to make sure that it resonates with everybody, that it's explained well. And how do people communicate with you? Uh, most people, there's multiple different ways that people can reach me. I mean, uh, I have a Slack group that people talk to me on. Um, 
They can get me there. They can get me on email. They can get me from the different contact forms. I make myself very, very accessible to people. It's interesting. I've um, heard this from two or three uh, people now with um, Slack channels that they have set up um, around uh, book development, which is just such an interesting, yeah, uh, <laughs> interesting shift. Um, uh, you know, from the old, you know, write in stealth mode, uh, <laughs> and then release the finished doorstopper, um, to having a live Slack channel where you can interact with the author and where they can see um, what people have to say about their books. Um, I guess the last question I have about your book is, um, I, I believe it's the first in what you're planning uh, to call the Little Green Book series. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. We're really interested in, in promoting series of books. Um, oh, sure. On LeanPub. So green is my favorite color, but green also means money, right? <laughs> so, um, And so what I do is I try to help you to go out and be more profitable, make more money. That's the whole point of what Know the Code is. It's a profession, okay? If you do it well, you're going to make more money. Um, So the Little Green Book series is this. They're very short books. There are 100 pages or less, somewhere around that 100-page mark. They talk about a specific topic. They're easy to digest. They get rid of all the jargon and stuff that makes it less consumable because then you have to go and explain, well, what's the jargon mean, right? What's this? What's that? Instead, it just gets down to the points. And the whole premise of these are this. We're going to teach programming and we're going to teach business skills. I'm going to say, okay, you know, I ran multi-million dollar companies. I've run big, huge projects of, you know, tens of millions of dollars of things, there's a process there. So I can teach people in that space too, to be able to say, okay, this is how you market yourself. This is how you do this. This is how you do that. And give them discernible skills that when you read the book, okay, I do this chapter, I read it. And now I have a skill set from that. I can go and apply it right now. That's the whole point of the little green book series, quick, easy, and something that you can pull into your workflow, your business, your workspace, and be able to do right now. That's a really, really great idea. Um, uh, yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing um, all the forthcoming books in the series. Um, uh, I was wondering, just very selfishly, um, <laughs> the last question I ask in, in interviews is always, um, well, usually, um, uh, you've got us here. Um, uh, you know, if there's anything we could build for you or fix in LeanPub, um, if there's any one thing you could pick, is, is there one thing um, you'd like us to do or like us to fix? Well, you know, um, I think that some folks would love to have more styling control over mm. things. The ability to be able to add anything in, even like I said, just to have the call out. So there are sidebars that you put in to be able to emphasize something that's not within the direct workflow of what you're talking about, right? It's a sidebar. It's more information. The, the ability to be able to, yes, you have those sidebars in there because you can do uh, information, question, those types of little blocks but they don't really pop off the screen as well as they could. If there's a way to put uh, some sort of styling around a little background, a little border, some way to be able to differentiate that this is outside the flow of the content. I think that would help a lot of people. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks very much for that suggestion. I know. I mean, I love the call outs that you did in your book. Um, I, you've got a lot of really uh, fun kind of icons and they definitely pop. I think there's one, one like a coffee mug. Yeah. Um, uh, which I really liked. Um, uh, yeah. Um, thanks. Thanks for that suggestion. That's something 
we always we always try to think about um uh you know one one um of our basic kind of approaches to publishing and that's why we're called lean pub partly is you know formatting is procrastination while you're writing but it's definitely not um when you're ready to finish your book um right. and and it depends on you know everybody's individual process as well but your book is so nice and i think we might um take some inspiration from it um, oh, yeah yeah because the, the call outs are something that even when you're in the process of writing you know that this is a call out right mm -hmm. it's a separate sidebar of information so something like that in somebody's eyes as they're reading it too it would be nice to just have a way to be able to discern that oh okay this is extra information and not in the content flow i can skip over it if i want to and as I understand it, that's that's a well-established convention in yeah. programming books, right? Yep. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, um, uh, thanks very much for telling us your story and for telling us about your book um, and uh, your approach to teaching, uh, Tanya. And uh, thanks for being on the Lean Pub podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. Oh, thank you. I really love Lean Pub, guys. Get out there and buy more books. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Thank you.